This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then God said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh." that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thanks, Noah David. Again, good morning. I'm Ted Sin, and we uh, continue on, obviously, uh, through our journey uh, in the book of Exodus, our most recent uh, series. I was sitting with a friend this week, and uh, he, he said this. He said that his faith, his Christianity, is largely intellectual And he's beginning to realize that biblical faith, biblical Christianity, genuine Christianity is more relational. He uh, was expressing a desire. He was actually asking for prayer. He was praying that, asking that, that we would pray that his faith, his Christianity would become more relational. I was, uh, like a lot of you, reading Deuteronomy 34 uh, this week and CBR Thursday Morning, and at the end of Deuteronomy, there's a summary of Moses' life. Remember, Moses uh, wrote just before his death, he wrote the Pentateuch, the first five 
books of the Bible. The book we're studying, Exodus, is the second act in a five-act play. And upon his death, um, someone picked up the pen and they wrote this about Moses. The Lord knew Moses face-to-face. Real-time relationship, face-to-face. And and as I read that text on Tuesday morning, uh, I was to a degree saddened by it. I found myself longing for it. Too often, my relationship with God is not described as face-to-face. And so as I thought about my personal walk, and, and as I thought about many of you and my interactions with you as your friend and as your pastor, um, I realize a common theme for us in this room is this. We desire more intimacy, more vibrancy, more real-time relationship with the God of the Bible. For my uh, intellectual friend, for me, for many of us, doctrine has become too dominant in his life. For many of us, on the other hand, duty or, or doing things has become too dominant. We tend to reduce Christianity in one of two directions. Some of us reduce Christianity to, to doctrine, knowing things. Some of us reduce Christianity to duty, doing things. And the Bible actually says this, doctrine is helpful in knowing God, but doctrine is not the same as knowing God. And that when we know God, we will increasingly serve him, will obey him. So there is duty involved, but the duty is not in the place of love. It's because we've been loved and we want to love him in return by doing what he says. And so our text this morning is the beginning of Moses's face-to-face relationship with God. From chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 17, Moses records the entirety of his interaction with God when God converted him and when God called him. And next week, we're actually going to take a look at the whole text. I have no idea if I'll make No David read all of it or not. I'll make that decision later. But this week, I just felt like God wanted us to stop halfway through the story and ask the question, What can this text teach us about increased intimacy with God? Now, on the one hand, we should not expect uh, Moses' experience to be exactly like our experience. Moses was unique. He held a special place in redemptive history. He was the human deliverer used by God to bring the people of Israel out of slavery. If you'll remember also in Deuteronomy 34, it said this, not only did Moses have a face-to-face relationship with God, it said, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. He's unique. But on the other hand, while Moses is unique in terms of his call, in terms of his historical context, in terms of maybe the intensity with which he experienced God, the patterns we see uh, in how God related to him are biblical patterns that are true for us today. In other words, the Bible as a whole constantly teaches that the relational component of our faith can increase, and this text illustrates how that can happen. All right, so here's your outline. The text is going to show us in three ways uh, how our faith can become more vibrant and relational. If we want enter personal intimacy with God, we have to increasingly dance with the detours, 
be formed by the fire, and move into the mission. Dance with the detours, be formed by the fire, and move into the mission. Okay, let's get started. If you have uh, your uh, worship folder, the insert has the text on it, you're probably going to want to follow along. I will, by and large, start at the top and move through the text. So, if communication and conversation is a key component to relationship, let's just ask the question, when did God speak to Moses? Okay, so first Moses in verse 1, he's reminding us that he's on this macro 40-year detour. This is not the plan that Moses had for his life. Okay, at age 40, a third of the way through his life, Moses was a powerful, educated, adopted princeling in Pharaoh's house. But eventually, as we talked about last week, he identified with his biological roots. So he identified with his oppressed Israelite family. And so Moses decided to visit his people, and it appears in the early parts of chapter 2 that Moses saw himself as the chief and the deliverer of the Israelites. And one day at a time, one act at a time, he was going to bring them out of this crushing, genocidal, national affliction. But in his second day as self-appointed deliverer, through an intemperate act and through underestimating how hard it is to lead people, Moses found himself in exile. He found himself on a detour. This is not the plan that Moses had for his life. At 80 years of age, okay, 40 years later, two-thirds of the way through his life, we find him in chapter 3, verse 1. He's the lowest man on the lowest totem pole in the entire world. He's in exile in Midian, a boundary-less people who eke out an existence in the wilderness. And so we find Moses keeping Jethro's sheep in verse 1. So he's 80 years old and he has no property of his own. Okay, so think about it. He's gone from a prince with promise to a hired hand. Not exactly turning out as he had hoped. We presume that there's no grass on the eastern side of the wilderness where the Midianites tended to want to be. And it says that Moses, in in verse 1, took the sheep over to the west side, over by Horeb, or what is later identified as Sinai in the Scripture. So where we pick up with Moses, he's in exile from his palace. He's in exile from his people. He's in exile from even his own family on the other side of the wilderness. And if communication is key to relationship, when does God speak to Moses? He is on a macro, God-sized detour. But that's not all. Pick up with me in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So while the details and the intensity may not be the same for us, when does God speak? When is relationship established? When does face-to-face begin? When Moses took a micro detour. In the grand scheme of things, Turning aside doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But that's precisely when when God finally spoke to Moses after orchestrating his life for 80 years. Twice the text emphasizes he turned aside. It's the word for detour. To leave one's preferred path. To no longer move straight ahead. To abandon the agenda of the masses. 
And so for 80 years, God ordered Moses' life, and he forced detour after detour after detour. But when did knowing happen? When Moses danced with the detour. When he turned aside, when he, when he focused, when he investigated, when he sought. Now, I tried to make this horribly complex this week. I tried really hard to make this more complex than it is. No surprise there. But this is so simple and yet so sparse in so many of our lives. The presence of God is in our peripheral vision. And God has been forcing detour after detour after detour in our lives, the life that we conceive to be the best possible. He's been forcing detours in our plans that we thought would fulfill us and that we thought would make us successful and give us life. And God is inviting us, especially in the seasons where he takes us on detours. He's inviting us to not willfully, stubbornly plug away on the path that we created for ourselves, but to turn aside and deal with him. To dance with the detour. To not see the detour as slowing us down and putting on the brakes, but to actually begin to see the detour as the pressing of the gas spiritually. Detours tend to slow you down, but the way God works is through detours, he speeds things up. And God is teaching us that if we would stop and take the detour, we would know him, that he's right there in the peripheral of our vision. So just uh, the ultimate human, of course, is, is Jesus, This is what it said about Jesus. This is what detours look like. Jesus said, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. And he says, I don't say anything unless the Father tells me to say it. So that's face-to-face. That's pretty real time right there. Everything I do and say is a direct connect to the Father. And the question is this, how did he get to that place? In Luke 2, we read that Jesus increased in wisdom. In other words, He knew the Old Testament scriptures. On top of the law, on top of the story, is wisdom. And so Luke's letting us know Jesus is a student of scripture. In Luke 4, we read that it was Jesus' habit to be in the synagogue worshiping God on the Sabbath. In Luke 5, we read it was Jesus' habit to withdraw, detour to desolate places to pray. I tried to make it more complex than this. It's not. we think that we can just keep going on our current path. We think that maybe we can hit a spiritual drive-through every now and then. We kind of think about it like this. I'll get up and I'll read my Bible so long as there's nothing good on TV the night before, and so long as I don't have an early appointment, and so long as I don't have anything important in my inbox when I wake up. And then we're like, Pastor, why is God so distant to me? We think like this. If I'm in town, I'll go to church. I'll see my friends. I'll take care, uh, advantage of the child care. Well, one out of six weeks is not bad for free child care. And the last thing on our minds is the opportunity to raise our voices and our hands and worship to God, to sing to him and to hear from him. We think like this. I'll pray in my car on the way to work unless I get a call or a text or a hey tell, some new some new sort of way to text. People have been bothering me with it. If you don't know what it is, don't ask. I can't figure it out either. Jesus withdrew to desolate, quiet, uninterruptible spaces. God doesn't do drive-through spirituality, from what I can tell. 
if done well, scripture reading, scripture listening, if done well, praying and public worshiping should feel like a detour, not a pit stop on the superhighway of life. So first, our faith becomes less intellectual, more relational, less dutiful, more interpersonal when we dance with the detours. But second, in order to know God, we must be formed by the fire. So pick back up in the text. The conversation has started. He is beginning his face-to-face relationship with God. And, and, And in order for Moses to stay in the conversation, for him to hear God, for him to be warmed by God's presence and not consumed by it, he has to begin to be formed by the fire. He has to engage the conversation with the assumption that God is there to shape him and he's not there to shape God. Verse five, then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And at the end of verse six, and Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. All right, in Exodus three, we have here what theologians call a theophany. It just means a God appearing. And the question is, how did God appear? In what way did he make himself visible? Verse two, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And if you know your Bible much at all, or if you remember any of the stories you were told in children's church growing up, that you know when God wants to appear to his people, not exclusively, but a lot of the times he shows up as fire. Genesis 15, God ratifies his covenant with Abraham. Scripture says he went through the severed animals. He appeared as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. When it comes time for God to lead his people out of Egypt in Exodus 13, we're going to see that the Lord appeared and went before them in a pillar of fire. In Exodus 19, God's going to descend onto this very same mountain, and he's going to descend as fire. In Exodus 40, the last verse of the book of Exodus, the tabernacle is erected and God's presence comes down into the tabernacle and it's fire. Many, many years down the road, God is going to meet Elijah on this same mountain and he's going to appear as fire. Hebrews 12, God is a consuming fire. And the question is, why fire? What does that communicate to us? Well, a lot. Fire is attractive. It's intriguing. It's daunting. It's to be respected. We tell kids, don't play with fire. Fire can warm you. Fire can sustain life, but fire can also destroy life. The right amount of fire properly applied to the right reality, like gold, can make that that reality uh, more pure and more valuable. Primarily, though, God chose fire because unlike Wood, clay, sand, and ice, fire is not shaped and formed by the touch of the human hand. That when we put our hand into fire, we don't manipulate it, it manipulates us. The one who touches fire doesn't change the fire. The fire changes the one who touches it. I have given this quote often. I don't know who to give credit for it. God created man in his image, speaking to the reality that humans are in God's likeness, that we're rational, we're creative, we're built for community, we can, we can communicate complex ideas and understand them. God created man in his own image, and ever since, man has been trying to return the favor. In, in other words, we have this sinful, arrogant, self-centered tendency of approaching God in order to get him to be what we want, 
to manipulate him into the shape we desire and the shape we deem best. Eventually, we move away from God because he won't play by our rules. In verses 13 to 15, one of the most thoroughly studied and debated passages in all of Scripture, God reveals his name. Again, next week, we're going to go over the entire conversation, and we'll think about this some more. But for now, from 50,000 feet, Moses says, what's your name? If I get to the people of Israel and they say, give me the name of the God who sent you to us, he's like, what should I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am is first person singular of the Hebrew verb to be, to exist. You'll see translators. I know you guys read commentaries in the wee hours of the morning because you love it. And you know the commentators fight over this. It's either I am who I am or it's I will be what I will be or it's I will cause what I will cause. And then in verse 14, God goes on. He says, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So simple, first person, singular verb of existence. I exist. And then finally, verse 15, God also said to Moses, say to the people, the Lord has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I'm to be remembered throughout all the generations. When you see the Lord in the Bible, all caps, some large caps, some small caps, that's the third person singular of the verb to exist. We're supposed to call him. He is. All right. So it should read like this to us in the English. Say this to the people at New City. He is has sent me to you. He is what he is. He is not what we want him to be. He's fire. He either shapes and refines us or he consumes us. Take the sandals off your feet. You're on holy ground. So how does the relationship, how does the conversation start? It's a detour. How does it deepen? How does it grow? Submission, surrender, awe, reverence, worship. My, I humbly, humbly suggest, including myself, that if our Christianity lacks vitality and vibrancy and real-time relationship, it's because we haven't fallen on our face yet. If God can't cross us, if God can't contradict us, if God's word doesn't regularly change our minds and our lives and our habits, we have no relationship with him. We can't just take the parts of the Bible that we like and that our culture likes and just leave behind whatever we disagree with or whatever is going to be offensive to our culture. He's not clay. He's fire. What is it for you? What is it for me? What is it about God's revelation of himself and his ways? that What, what do we refuse to give in to? Where do we refuse to have the fire form us? Is it what he says about our money? Is it what he says about disciplining our children? Is it what he says about uh, sex outside of marriage? Is it what he says about his expectations that we would share our faith liberally and freely with our neighbor? Is it what he says about gender roles? Is it what he says about authority in his church? Is it what he says about hell? What is it? Last week, I said it, I'll say it again. Exodus can be outlined and summarized in three words. Deliverance, instruction, presence. God is present, but our experience of that presence increases as we obey him. And we don't obey him so that he might deliver us. We obey him because he already delivered us. Jesus says that we experience joy when we abide in him, and we abide in him when we do what he says. 
Paul says in 1 Timothy that the peace of his presence is experienced by us when we practice the disciplines God gives us. We think, give me some peace and I'll do some disciplines. Give me some joy and I'll obey. And God says deliverance, instruction, presence. That's the order. A consuming fire. Maybe we're taking the detours, but we haven't taken the sandals off our feet to be instructed by God. And so Christianity will become increasingly relational as we dance with the detours, as we're formed by the fire, and lastly, as we move into the mission. Go back up to verse 7. It's at this point in the story Moses has taken off his sandals. He's hiding his face. His life was radically changed in about two and a half minutes. Okay, verse 7. Then the Lord said, so then he is said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. God is, he's telling Moses, he said, I've been watching carefully the entire time. I've been paying very close attention to the plight of my people. Verse 8. And I have come down to deliver them. Come down is, is biblical. It's typical biblical language to describe God when he's going to intervene in things. And Moses is thinking, I think, it's about time. The oppression and the affliction and the tribulation is so intense. They're throwing babies in the Nile. It's about time. You go, God. Don't slow down. You go. And God keeps on going. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And Moses is thinking, a spacious land flowing with milk and honey? Could you swing by here on your way back? Could you just tell me where to meet you on the way to this land? In fact, if you'll just send me a text, I'll bring the whole family and we'll come up and we'll meet you. That land sounds amazing compared to Egypt and it sounds incredible compared to where I live now. Verse 9. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so a moment ago, verse 8, God said he would do the delivering. He said he would do the bringing out. And now God's saying to Moses, you're going to do the bringing out. Okay, a little prophetic comment. So that means before we actually discover it in the text. If you want to be in lockstep with God, if you want to be in his presence, if you want to be in business with him, live a missional life. It's where he is. If you want religion where you define God, where I'm never crossed by him, where we're never forced to change and adapt, where God sort of sprinkles fairy dust all over our dreams and our wishes, don't expect that from the God of the Bible. Don't expect the God of the Bible to come to you and to give you manis and petties and nice cars and give me a frou-frou life. If I want an intellectual experience, I keep continuing in my agenda. If I want a relationship with passion and awe and intimacy, I get into the mission of God. God is still about the business of liberating the oppressed. He is still about the business of giving justice to the victimized. He is still extending mercy to the guilty. He is still bringing light to those in darkness. He is still spreading truth to those in the hell of self-deception. That's where he is. Want to know God? Go be where he's at. But, verse 11... Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And there's a redundancy here that our translations, they don't want to give you because it's too awkward. But Moses keeps saying the first person pronoun I over and over in the text. And he's essentially saying to God, who am I? 
Who is the I that's going to be doing all this? He's like, remember, God, I already tried this. Remember, I tried to bring deliverance 40 years ago. Where were you then? He's like, if you, if you send me back to Egypt, it's going to be a one-man show against the greatest superpower in the world. And God didn't say, go and convince the Israelites to sneak out at night. God said, walk right up to Pharaoh and let them know what we're up to. And look at God's answer. He doesn't say, you're not believing in yourself. You can do it. You're underestimating yourself. He said, verse 12, I will be with you. Want to be in God's presence. Move deeper into the mission of God. God is not denying our inadequacy. He is not denying our weakness, our poverty, our folly, our failures. God is saying this, be the means by which I reach the world. Do you want to know what it feels like to have God raging through you like a hurricane? God is saying, plunge your poverty, plunge your folly, plunge your inadequacy, plunge your failures into the mission. And he says, watch my wealth, watch my wisdom, watch my adequacy, watch me move through you. Moses says, I can't do it. And God says, exactly. So what's the point? That's where I am. And so God says, I'm present in the mission. I'm in the place where you move out beyond yourself in order to advance my kingdom. Moses, join me in the place of faith and dependence and trust. Do you want to know the joy of the presence of God? Share your faith. Proclaim the gospel to your neighbor, to your relative, to your coworker, to your fellow student. John says in 1 John, he says, I communicate the gospel. Listen to the reason why. He says, so that my joy may be complete. He doesn't say I share the gospel so your joy can be complete. He says, I share Jesus so the joy of Jesus can be in me. Want to meet Jesus personally? Give food to the hungry, clothe the naked, give water to the thirsty, visit the prisoner. Jesus says in Matthew 25, when we do these things for the least of these, we do these things to him. He meets us there. So, in conclusion, what if we haven't uh, gladly danced with the detours? And further, what's going to increasingly motivate us to, to desire the detours in the future? What if we largely haven't surrendered to the forming fire of God? What will cause us in the future to want his shape as what's best for us? What if we've given uh, massive portions of our life, if not all of our lives, to our own mission, our own agenda, our own victory, our own fame? What do we do about that? And then what do we do? What's going to inflame us, if you will, with the mission of God, the agenda of God, the fame of God? Well, in a word, the answer for where we find grace and the answer for where we find motivation is the gospel of Jesus. And it's clearly presented in the text. It's clearly pictured in the text. So let's go back. We're going to go back up to the top. We're going to go slowly through a couple of things that I flew over. We have to understand the ultimate point in the burning bush, and we have to understand the ultimate point in the angel of the Lord. Okay, so first, the burning bush. What's the ultimate point of the burning bush? Who is the burning bush a symbol of? Who does the burning bush picture? Moses. It pictures Moses. The bush should be consumed by fire, and it's not, just like Moses. In verse 3, 
Moses' curiosity moves him over into the presence of God, and curiosity does not kill the cat. In verse 4, God says to Moses, Moses, Moses. It's a, it's a technique uh, uh, called the repetition of endearment. Uh, basically, you won't find in literary, in this time, in the literature, literary world, you will not find an enemy saying to an enemy, Moses, Moses. You'll only find a friend saying to a friend, Moses, Moses. And then in verse 5, God says literally, stop. Do not go any further. And he doesn't say, you were about to walk on holy ground. He says, the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The ground was made holy by the presence of God and Moses in curiosity, went and stood on that holy ground. And after the fact, God said, take your shoes off. That's mercy. That's grace. That's forgiveness. That's kindness. But how? How can God, the consuming fire, be gracious and not consume the bush, not consume Moses. And I don't mean the little bush, I mean the big one. To answer that, you've got to think about uh, the ultimate point of the angel of the Lord. Did you notice in verse 2, it's not the Lord, it's the angel of the Lord who appeared. Now, this angel is no ordinary angel. The created angel in Revelation who was interacting with John, when John fell to his face and worshipped him, said, get up, do not worship me. And if John doesn't get up, and if the angel doesn't tell him to get up, the angel's gone. This is no ordinary angel. The angel of the Lord in Exodus 3 demands worship. Then in verse 4, from where the angel of the Lord is, in the midst of the bush, God speaks. So now the angel of the Lord has become God. And then in verse 7, where God has been talking, the Lord, he is, speaks. And so God and Moses want us to see that the angel of the Lord is both identical to Yahweh and distinct from Yahweh, a manifestation of Yahweh, and at the same time, different from Yahweh. Now, this is incredibly mysterious. I reserve the right to change my vocabulary next week if I change my mind. But uh, later in Exodus, we're going to see that the angel of the Lord is a merciful condescension of God. It is a way for God to be with his sinful people and for them to not be consumed. Just like here with Moses, just like centuries later with Jesus. I'm not necessarily saying that the angel of the Lord is Jesus, but I am saying that the angel of the Lord is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. I'm not saying this is definitely Jesus. I'm saying this definitely anticipates Jesus. Listen closely. This is a quote from one of my favorite commentators. You probably highlighted this section too. There is only one other in the Bible who is both identical to and yet distinct from the Lord. One who, without diminishing divine holiness, is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners. One who affirms the wrath of God and at the same time is a supreme display of God's outreaching mercy. The one is Jesus. In Philippians 2, we, we learn that when God took on skin in Jesus, when he incarnated, it says he emptied himself. That in Jesus, there was some mysterious level of self-emptying. And one aspect of that was holy, hot wrath. Jesus, for a season, lived among sinners without consuming them in order that he might be consumed for them. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
the one who took every detour, the one who always conformed himself to the will of God, the one who went on mission into hell saying, not my will, but your will be done. This one was abandoned by the Father on the cross and you and I, by his grace, can stand on holy ground and not die. What is the picture of the bush? It is God inside of a man and the man not dying. It's Moses. It's us. It's you and me because God died in our place. It's the gospel of Jesus that forgives us and drives us into future intimacy with God. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you so much that your holiness, your justice, your judgment, your wrath has been upheld and satisfied. We thank you, Jesus, that you came and in your life, you lived perfectly and beautifully and utterly dependent upon the Father. And anyone deserved presence that was you. And at the cross, you were forsaken. We cannot even begin to imagine the hell of not knowing your Father's presence. We thank you so much for your willingness and your love and your compassion and your grace to come and get stubborn people like me. Thank you for your kindness to me that I would prefer my agenda to yours. I'm frustrated by your detours. I think your mission is going to rob me of life instead of give me life. I pray that you would forgive me. I thank you for your life and death on our behalf. Would you, in fact, by your spirit and by the gratitude and the joy you give us, would you move us into knowing you more fully? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.